Bibles this morning, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. And I want to call your attention to the last verses of this chapter, verses 29 through 39, where we find this section of Matthew ending with more of the miraculous works of the Savior. To say that the ministry of Jesus Christ was fascinating, I think would be the very least that we could say about it, uh, about the wonderful works that he did. Uh, We ought to be more than fascinated, I think, by what Jesus did, because I'm fascinated by things that men do. Uh, Like a monkey, I'm fascinated with bright, shiny objects. Uh, I'm fascinated by uh, my smartphone. I'm fascinated by my iPad. I'm fascinated that I can sit and study for sermons and with a mouse click or just a few strokes of a keyboard, I can pull up hundreds of different resources to help me in preparation of sermons. Technology is really a beautiful thing. Uh, I'm amazed by all the time-saving devices that there are, all the ones that take up all my time trying to figure out how I can save time. I'm fascinated by social networking, how that people can have thousands of friends and yet never personally touch them and can get rid of them by remote control. Uh, friends are just sent away with, with uh, as I said, with remote control into cyberspace never to be thought of again. So we are quickly becoming a culture of humans with no human contact. And I wonder what it would be like if Jesus had come today rather than 2,000 years ago because people today think that the greatest need that they have is how to figure out Uh, how they can fix a corrupted file, or how they can express the innermost feelings of their heart, the deepest feelings that they have, in 160 characters or less. And I wonder if we'd really understand the compassion that Jesus had for the disease and the helpless that he ministered to in the first century. Uh, it's, It's easy for us to think about poverty and sickness as really nothing more than statistics. We think of poverty as something that we need to live just a little bit above, so we need to know where the poverty level is. And we think about sickness in terms of statistics because that's what dictates the cost of health care. And we think of religion in terms of statistics as well. And so we need George Barna to keep polling people to find out what works and what doesn't work in order to get people to come to church on a Sunday morning. But none of that is actually based on knowing people about them, about their lives. And I tend to believe that the miracle of the new birth, the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of changing lives so that they have the love and compassion of Jesus is more a miracle today than it was 2,000 years ago. And that's because we are just so detached from the lives of others. I mean, there's never been a time in the history of of the human race that we are detached from people like we are today. Now, hopefully in the message this morning, we can transport ourselves back into the first century and we can see ourselves in the crowds of thousands of sick and hurting people that came to Jesus. And we need the touch of Jesus today just as much or even more so, I think, than people did in that time. And we need to learn how that we can display the love and compassion that Jesus had for other people. And we need to be transformed to be able to do the ministry that Jesus did so that we can enable others to feel his touch as well. I'd like you to look then at Matthew chapter 15 
And if you'd stand once again with me for the reading of the word, verse number 29, and I promise you won't have to stand again until we're done. Matthew 15, beginning at verse number 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days, and have nothing to eat, And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And his disciples say unto him, When should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? That's a very interesting question that they ask when we've just studied, just not long ago, the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus fed that entire multitude of 5, 15, maybe 20,000 people, counting women and children with just five loaves and two fishes. And now the disciples ask again, where are we going to get something to feed all of these people? Verse number 34, And Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and brake them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came into the coast of Magdala. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word today. We just ask you, Lord, that you would bless and open up our hearts to this message, what you'd have us to know from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. First in your outline today, what I'd like to do is set the scene for you, where, where we are in this particular passage. We're now in the last year of Jesus' ministry. His popularity had hit its peak with the feeding of the 5,000. And at the end of that miracle, the people were so convinced that Jesus was the man for them that they wanted to make him a king right then. Almost immediately, they wanted Jesus to become the king over them. They didn't look at him, really, as a savior from their sins. Uh, They looked at him as a savior from their diseases, someone who could heal them. And more importantly, they looked at him as a savior from their hunger. Jesus became so popular that the people did want to make him a king. And this was a very dangerous situation for him because he was in the territory of Herod Antipas, who was the Roman ruler, and he was perceived as a threat to the stability of the government. And so Jesus needed to get away from that situation and let things cool down for just a bit. He was constantly sought after by the people so that it was impossible for him to get any rest. Everywhere he went, the crowds followed. And in his humanity, Jesus was subject to the tiredness of long days just as we are. 
And so with this political problem that's pressing him and with the tiredness that he had from all of the work that he was doing from day to day and meeting and healing so many people, he decided to leave Galilee for a little while and he crossed over the border into the environs of Tyre and Sidon and there it was not his intention to draw attention. But while he was there, he was recognized by a Canaanite woman, a Gentile woman, and she needed help. And we read about this in the verses that are previous to where we are today. And this woman needed Jesus' help so desperately because her daughter was possessed with a demon. And in that incident, Jesus found greater faith in this Gentile woman that he'd found in the two years previously as he ministered in Judea and Galilee. Now, it wasn't really Jesus' purpose when he went into Tyre and Sidon, into that region to minister to Gentiles, because specifically he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So his main ministry was not to those people, and yet it was still true what was prophesied of him at his birth. Simeon, if you remember, held the Christ child in his hands when he was taken into the temple. And Simeon said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now, after Jesus granted this woman's request and he graciously saved her according to that great demonstration of faith, he returned to the area around the Sea of Galilee. And immediately upon coming back into that area, the news of his arrival reached the people. And so the crowds came again and they came and they brought all of the sick people with them and they laid those people at Jesus' feet. And the crowd stayed with Jesus for three days. And at the end of that period, they were hungry. And so Jesus fed this crowd of 4,000 people in a similar way as to he had fed, as the way he had fed the 5,000 earlier. Now this miracle of feeding the 4,000 is actually called the forgotten miracle of the New Testament. And that's because it follows closely after the feeding of the 5,000. There were more people that were fed at that time. And so here is a crowd that is slightly smaller. But the miracle is actually very significant and is considered by some to be even a greater miracle than that previous feeding, and that's because of the crowd, the makeup of the crowd that Jesus fed. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but we look into the book of Mark, who gives us the same story, and Mark says, and again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came into the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. So Mark gives us the details of the location where Jesus was along the sea and where he was was in a primarily Gentile area. He was in the area of the Decapolis and it was known, uh, that name, that uh, the, these, this place was known as the area of the Decapolis because there were 10 Gentile cities that were in the area. You may remember that when Jesus healed the maniacs of Gadara, that they were in this area. When Jesus uh, cast the demons out of them, when they were saved, they headed into the cities of Decapolis and told about the great miracle that Jesus did. So the feeding of the 4,000 becomes very significant because the crowd that was present was primarily Gentile. So the significance of that 
is that Jesus prepared a table for the Jews in the feeding of the 5,000 and prepared a table for the Gentiles in the feeding of the 4,000. And so we see then that salvation comes to both because Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So that sets the scene for us, and it shows why that Matthew, as we discussed last week, which is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, why Matthew includes this story of Jesus as the king. He wrote about a kingdom that reveals Jesus as the king of a universal kingdom. And you might want to make note of that on your listening sheet today. Remember this, that Jesus is the king of a universal kingdom. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are, Jesus is the Savior of all people. Now, I call your attention to verses 30 and 31, where it says, And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, the last part of verse number 31 shows that this was a primarily Gentile crowd. These were people who were a worshiper of a variety of heathen gods. But when they saw Jesus do the miracles, it says they glorified the God of Israel. Now, I'd like you to notice next something else that we find in this story, and that is the symbols of salvation. You look at these people that were brought to Jesus. They brought those that were lame. They brought people that were blind and dumb. They brought those that were maimed and they cast them down at Jesus' feet. Now, if there is a lack of sensitivity in your heart for the terrible condition of others, if your friends are all Facebook friends and smart book phone friends that you never touch and the people that you talk to, you don't actually ever hear their voices. You just see what they have to say in a text message. Then you need to stop for just a moment and to consider what took place here when Jesus was in this crowd of hurting people, sick people, people that needed his help, people that needed to feel his touch. Can you imagine what it must have been like for a crippled person Perhaps someone had been crippled all of his life to be able to get up and walk. And can you imagine a blind person who has his eyes opened and the first sight that he sees is the face of the Savior? Can you imagine what it must have been like for a deaf person and the first words that he hears are words that come from the sweetest voice that's ever been heard? Can you imagine dumb people, that is, those that are not able to speak, that the first words that come out of their mouths are words of praise and glorifying Jesus, who is the God of Israel? You need to take just a moment to empathize with those feelings. Turn off all of your mechanical responses for just a moment and plunge into some deep thought about the joy that rippled through that crowd as Jesus healed people, as they listened to his voice... And then you can hear their voices as they swell in this magnificent chorus where they say, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. When is the last time that you considered how the love and compassion of Jesus came into your heart? And when was the last time that you lifted up your voice to praise God for all the wonderful works that he's done for you? 
When is the last time that you came to church and you actually worshipped him? You see, worship is more than just singing the songs. It's more than an emotional response to what takes place there. It's more than going through all the motions of a liturgy or the kinds of things that are done in church services. Worship is when God touches you. And then with love and adoration, you praise him for all of the marvelous works that he's done. Worship is when you recognize his power, when you understand and see that he is God, when you see that he is holy, that he's worthy of all the honor that you can give, that the very best that you can give, that the most that you can offer, that the loudest and the longest that you can sing is never enough. But all that you can ever do is bow yourself in the presence of Jesus Christ and honor and give reverence to his name. Now I want to take you for a few minutes through the symbols of salvation that are found in these verses. Uh, With modern medicine, we don't meet a large number of crippled people. We haven't met a great deal of blind people. I think over my life, and, and I don't think of large numbers of people that I know that are dumb, I mean, dumb in a certain way. I mean, they're not dumb so they can't speak, not somebody who's never been able to speak in all of his life. I don't know anybody like that. Actually, I don't have any friends like that. But I also look over this entire congregation today, and I know that all of you, at some point in your life, and maybe even right now, you are someone that's spiritually lame and spiritually blind and spiritually dumb. And so I want you to think for just a few minutes this morning about the spiritual diseases that we can draw out of this passage. What are the spiritual diseases that are here? Well, first we could see the inability to step. The psalmist wrote, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. How many times in reading the Bible have you seen that the Christian life is compared to a walk? What are the steps in our Christian life? What does the Bible mean when it says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord? Well, we have this thought that walking and living are parallel thoughts throughout the New Testament. So that whenever you see the Bible say something about walking with God, it's talking about the way that you live your life. And only those that have been given the ability to walk can actually walk with God. That means to live for him. Now, there are many people that say that they know God and they will claim that God is their friend and they will say that God walks with them wherever they go, that God is with them, when in reality what they're doing is they're just sitting in a heap and God has left them far beyond, behind. He's walked on past them. You watch the lives of people and you see where their steps lead them and you know that God can't be with them because of way, the way that they live, what they do, where they go. Now, when the scriptures talk about the walk of a person, the walk of a Christian, it says things like this. We find this in Colossians chapter 2. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Living for Christ, that's what the walk of a Christian is. The spiritual disease of the inability to walk with God can only be cured by faith in Christ. And when we talk about receiving Christ and committing ourselves to him, this is where we receive Christ as the Lord of our lives so that he rules every part of our lives. He's not Lord just on Sundays. He's not Lord when you walk into the 
doors of this building and all of a sudden now he's become the Lord of his life and you worship your life and you worship him. No, Jesus is Lord all of the time. Every day of the week when you leave this place, Jesus is still the Lord. And so when you come to Jesus and you surrender yourself to him, he becomes the Lord of your life, he rules your life, you're captured by him, you are conquered by him. And even the Bible teaches that you are a slave to him. And that means that you don't serve yourself, you serve him. And if you haven't ever made that commitment with your life, then don't say that you walk with God, because that's what walking with God is. And if you don't do this, if you haven't made that commitment, you are still spiritually lame, because the Bible teaches that all that Jesus heals desire to walk closely in his steps. Secondly, we see the inability, or there is the inability to see. The scriptures talk about those that don't know Christ as being spiritually blind. Now, spiritual blindness has to do with the inability to see God by faith. Classic example we have of this is Nicodemus. He came to Jesus in John chapter 3, and if you remember in that chapter, he commented about the miracles that Jesus did. And yet, seeing all the miracles that he did that didn't necessarily or had not brought him to faith. It didn't produce faith in him. Miracles don't produce great faith. And for all the proof that you need, you go to the book of Genesis and Exodus. And, well, let's look at Exodus and talk about Moses and how he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. That there were people that walked through dry ground uh, in the midst of the Red Sea. These are people that drank water miraculously out of a rock. And people that received manna from heaven and they were fed that manna from God. And yet the Bible tells us that the youngest generation was the only one that was able to go into the promised land. Remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And it tells us why they couldn't go in. The older generation didn't go in. This is the generation that experienced all of those miracles and yet they weren't able to go in. And the Bible says it was because of their unbelief. Miracles are not the thing that causes great faith. Now, if you're looking for a church service or some kind of a healing campaign and you think miracles are going to convince me to come to Christ, the Bible doesn't teach that. You don't come to Christ because of miracles. That's not going to cause anyone to become a Christian. Jesus said to Nicodemus that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the Bible uses the word see there as the same word as faith. Unless you see God by faith, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, there are many people that agree about the facts of Jesus' death. And they've read the Bible and they will say, well, we agree with Jesus, with the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We know that he died on the cross. We know that he went into the tomb but you ask them this question, have you been born again? And they don't know what you're talking about. They don't understand the question. I've heard people say, I am a Christian, but I'm not a born again Christian. You may not know this, but the vast majority of Roman Catholics never speak about being born again. And that's because their theology doesn't allow for spiritual eyes to be opened through the ministry of the word. To them, faith cannot be affected supernaturally entirely by the word because it takes some human performance to make that happen. That's what the Bible calls spiritual blindness. 
Spiritual blindness is the condition of every person that is not born again because they cannot see the kingdom of God. Now the scriptures also show that spiritual blindness is the activity of Satan. And if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you might not like to be told that you're under the power of Satan, but that's what the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So the devil has a lot to do with spiritual blindness. But it might surprise you to find out that God has much to do with spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness can also be the activity of God. Jesus did many miracles among the Jews, and yet they were hard-hearted. They didn't believe. They accused Jesus of blasphemy. They rejected him, and so God shut their eyes so they could not see. In John, the 12th chapter, it says, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah, or Isaiah, uh, Isaiah the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, listen, the Bible says, Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes, and the he refers to God, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. Blindness can be caused by God. Now here is the important matter for you today. If you want to see, then don't shut Christ out. Don't do what these people did. When the gospel is preached, believe it. And come to God and ask him to help your unbelief and open your eyes that you might see. The more often that you hear the word of God and you reject it may lead you to the place where God says, I'm not going to show you that light any longer. I'm going to shut up the gospel to you. Sometimes blindness is the activity of God. Thirdly, there is the inability to speak. Now, it's hard to believe that the majority of the world doesn't have the ability to speak. A few nights ago, there were some neighbors that I wish didn't have the ability to speak. Uh, there was a fight going on outside of the house, and you never heard such language. And Well, maybe you have, but um, there was such language that, that, you know, make a sailor blush, as they say, to hear what was being said. And so we, we think, well, surely people do have the ability to speak. What I'm talking about here, though, is a spiritual ability in which you are able to speak for God. Now, you may be able to speak, but you can't speak God's language. And I don't mean here speaking in some unknown tongue. I don't mean that at all. I'm talking about being able to speak the truth of God. You can't do that naturally. Now, here's the way the Bible describes every person that comes into the world. And here's the reason why you could never speak the truth of God. Because David said in the Psalms, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're born, speaking lies. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Is David telling the truth about that? That people, as soon as they're born, they go out speaking lies? That's what the Bible says about all of us. Is there anyone here today that you could honestly say that you'd never told a lie? And you raise your hand and say, I'm not me, I'm not a liar. Well, as soon as you do, I'll say, well, there you go. You're a liar now because you just told another one. 
Now, all of us are liars. And what does the Bible say about a person who lies? Well, we find this in Revelation 21, verse 8, among many other places. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And you may say, well, okay, but I've never told a big lie. I've never told a black lie. Well, the Bible doesn't say here that black lies are condemned and white lies are okay. It says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. You know what that means? He's just simply telling us there's none of us that can speak the truth of God. God never lies. God always speaks the truth. And unless God changes us, unless he enables us to speak the truth, we're never going to utter one word of praise to God. That's just not something that people do naturally. We are unable to speak for God. But when we come to Christ, he changes the heart and the tongue is released in order that we might praise God. As that hymn writer said, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. And do you know where the first words are? When God saves you, when the first first words that come out of a person's heart, when God is working in the heart to regenerate, Romans 10 verse 10 tells us what happens. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So when God opens up your heart, that's when you confess God in salvation. Now we notice the fourth spiritual disease, and this is the one that sort of sums up all of the inability of people, and that is the inability to satisfy, the inability to satisfy God. In the 30th verse it says, And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, do you see the word maimed? If you ever wonder about faith healers, and if what they do is, is really characteristic of what Christ did, then ask them about this word. If you ever get an opportunity, ask them about this word. What about maimed? Can you heal somebody who is maimed? Do you know what it means? It means someone who has a missing hand, a missing foot, A missing leg? Maimed means something has happened to that limb. Born without it or it's been cut off, something has happened. And they brought people to Jesus that were maimed. And they were totally amazed that Jesus was able to put a hand back on a person. To put a leg on a person. To put a foot that's been severed. Jesus could put those back. Ask a faith healer to do that. Make it real simple for him. Ask him... To put a fingernail back on. Give you a new fingernail. How much faith would it take to get a fingernail? Ask them about that and you'll learn whether they can do what Jesus did. So what do we know about spiritual diseases or these things that are all together here? We see everything grouped together here. And the Bible calls this, all of these spiritual diseases lumped all together into one are called the depravity. The depravity of man. We are totally depraved with a sinful nature. People don't like to, be, like to hear this kind of preaching, they want that kind of talk. What are we missing? We're missing a new nature. Everything that we do works out of this old nature that we were born with. And so that nature is wicked from top to the bottom so that there's nothing that we can do that will ever satisfy God. 
Psalm 38, verse 7, David said, For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease. There is no soundness in my flesh. Isaiah said, Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even unto the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Now, I could spend all of our time right here talking about the condition of man. What is wrong with us? This is really the summation of the extent of our disease, that we have no desire, we have no will, we have no heart, we have no mind, we have no ability to reach up to God and to please him or satisfy him in any way. When Adam fell in the garden, he lost all of that ability, and we are the children of Adam, and we simply do not have the ability to please God. So here we are. We're lost. We're helpless. We are doomed. We're sinners. And here we lay at the foot of Jesus Christ, at the feet of the Savior. Now, before we'll ever care about others, before we'll ever love others, before our friends are to us what God's friends are to him, We first have to recognize how lost, how sinful, how defiled that we are. And you need to be thankful for the church. Be thankful for a Christian friend. Be thankful for a pastor. Be thankful for a Sunday school teacher. Be thankful for a Christian layman who brought you to the feet of Jesus so that you could be healed. You can't satisfy God. You might as well stop trying. You'll never satisfy him because all the religious activity that we can try to do for God comes out of this polluted, sinful nature. You need a new nature in order to serve God and please him. And there's only one way to get that new nature, and it has to be given to you by faith in Jesus Christ. So we have these spiritual diseases. We can't step or we can't walk with God. We can't see. We're blind. We can't speak. We're dumb. And as Isaiah said, from the top of our heads to the sole of our feet, there is no soundness in us, nothing in us that glorifies and satisfies God. We're, we're sinners. And so the title that we can put in front of all of our names is sinner. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the book of Matthew and you look there, probably on that title page as you open your Bible to Matthew, there's a little line there that says maybe the gospel of St. Matthew Or at the top of your page as you go through, it may say St. Matthew there. Well, those of us that are sinners, we could put sinner in front of our name. All of us are that way. Sinner Mark, sinner Dalton back there, and sinner Gary, sinner Jorge, sinner Melissa. And I have to put the women in there too. You've got to let them know they're sinners. We're all sinners. But one day, God changed all of that. Someone brought us to the feet of Jesus and he saw that lost condition. He saw how that we were undone, how that we were helpless, how we could do nothing for ourselves. And Jesus healed us of the disease of sin and that was by faith in him. And so you see St. Matthew in the Bible? Well, I can put saint in front of my name, St. Mark, now that I'm a believer in Christ. And there's St. Dalton and St. Gary, St. Jorge, and also St. Melissa. And we are saints of God because we have been changed and given a new nature. We have been given the nature of God so that we can actually please him. Now, I've spent all of my time talking to you about the symbols of salvation. 
And my intention here today is to actually bring you to this point, and that is where you are at the feet of the Savior of sinners. The Savior of sinners. Several years ago, I was writing on a Christian chat board, and I spelled Savior the way that you see it on the screen. Now, at first, I was called ignorant because someone would say, well, how in the world could you ever argue anything about theology, anything about God, if you can't even spell the word Savior? Well, there was a friend who came to defend me and said, well, he writes Savior that way because it comes from the King James. And you'll pardon me, but I've been in the King James all of my life, and so I have got this habit of spelling Savior with seven letters instead of six. And I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of this, and I'm not really trying to get something weird going on here, but in the Bible, seven is a number of completion, a number of completion. And it seems to me that in our new Bible versions that Savior has been downgraded to a six, the number of man, six letters in the word Savior. I'm not trying to make a doctrine out of that. It's just an observation that I want you to see. But what I want you to do, or what I want to do, is to bring you to the complete Savior, the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. I want to bring you to the one who saves, and he saves forever. And this Savior never asks you to do anything. He never says, here's what you have to do for me in order to obtain eternal life. No, this is the Savior who's done everything for you, the one who's left nothing for you to do. Now, in Matthew 15, 32, it says, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. Now, we've been through the feeding of the 5,000. That's not very long ago. And like many commentators, I can tell you that the feeding of the 5,000, the lessons that are learned there are very, very similar to the feeding of the 4,000. The lessons are similar, except for this one little difference, and that is when Jesus fed the 5,000, he was feeding Jews, and when he fed the 4,000, he was feeding mostly Gentiles. Now, let me point out for you then, since we've learned all of those lessons before in the feeding of the 5,000, I won't spend time with that, but let me point out to you four lessons very quickly as we close today. And don't be alarmed about this, that you've got four points that are left on your listening sheet. You will make it for Sunday night football this evening. And uh, actually, you'll get to watch the first 15 minutes before you come back to church tonight. But if you'll look at this very quickly... Let's just look at some lessons that are learned here. First is compassion versus contempt. Jesus was very different from the other religious leaders. I would love to have been able to hear Jesus' voice. I mean, how sympathetically, how gently, how tenderly did he say this word compassion? I have compassion on the people. You know, a, a man with a hard heart would scarcely have noticed the sick that were in that crowd. I mean, this was an everyday occurrence. They had no health care. They had no doctors like we have today. And so these kinds of sicknesses were common among the people. And so it was just something you went through every day. You didn't really think about that. But Jesus did. He saw that suffering. Jesus called himself a physician. Now, I was watching a television show the other day and some show about doctors, and one doctor said to another, you can't let yourself get personally involved in the lives of your patients. I was talking to my doctor a few weeks ago at Kaiser, and I like my doctor at Kaiser, but he told me that he has 3,500 patients. 
And you wonder, how could that person, how could he, does he know everything about all those patients? Is he involved in their personal lives? Does he know about them in that way? We'd have to say, no, of course not. There's no way that he could do that. But Jesus is a physician who knows every patient all the way down to the depths of his most innermost being. And he not only knows about them, the Bible says that he cares about them. But the religious leaders were nothing like that. They had contempt for the people. And you know why? Because they were failures. They were failures at keeping all of those extra laws and traditions that had been placed upon the people. They were upset with the people because they did not keep those. And their solution to it was to heap more burdens upon them. Just keep adding things to them. So they weren't shepherds that loved the sheep and they weren't doctors who loved their patients. Jesus rebuked that crowd because he had compassion for people. You know, here's one thing about this, folks, you need to understand. Jesus will not let you save yourself. He won't let you. He he doesn't even want you to try because he knows it's never going to work. So in order to take care of that, to save you, he gave himself for you. He gave up his own life for you. He went to the cross for you. And that's the compassion that he had. He wanted to save you. Secondly is fasting, feigning, and feeding. These are people that had been three days with Jesus. At night, they slept on the ground. They got up the next morning, brought more people to him to be healed. They were hungry. They'd exhausted all of their resources. And Jesus did not want to send them away hungry because he was afraid that they would faint because of their weakness. Oh, isn't that his character? He kept them from feigning. Now, these people... We're in a, that's a very hilly region where he was, so he wasn't going to send them scaling those hills and in a famished position to where they faint in the way. He kept them from fainting. Have you thought about this when you're always complaining about life's inequities? How many times that Jesus Christ has kept you from fainting? How many times has he sent an angel to guard you when you might have been involved in a very serious accident how many times has a little piece of a blood clot or a, something on your arteries come loose and instead of going to your brain or to your heart, that he takes care of that and he keeps you from fainting. He's your resource. And when you come to him in faith, he will feed you and will keep you from fainting. Thirdly, we see that Jesus broke bread, the breaking of the bread. What does that symbolize? Well, it symbolizes his death on the cross. The Bible shows that his body was broken for us, that he might be the savior of sinners. You see, if he hadn't given his life, then we wouldn't have eternal life. If he didn't pay for our sins, then those sins would still be on us and we would be left to try to do something about it. And we've ought to do something about it. We've already learned. We can't do anything about it. We're helpless in that area. So we have nothing to offer God for sin. That's why we need Jesus. Fourthly, we are filled to the full. Now, I began our lesson talking about the lack of care and compassion. What we do is we put farther and farther distances between us and others by using our eye lovers. Our eye lovers, that's the the gadgets that we use, and we avoid personal contact with those things. But Jesus waded into the sea of people with the intent of giving them exactly what they needed. And you look at this and you think, well, here's the feeding of the 4,000. It looks like Jesus did less for Gentiles than he did for Jews. 
He must have loved the Jews more because he did more for them. Because you remember in that feeding that there were five or there were five thousand. Uh, that's the number of men. And the Bible says that there were twelve baskets that were left over. And here, as we read about the four thousand, there's seven baskets are left over. Does that mean that God does more for Jews than He does Gentiles? Well, actually, what it's less may be more, because. The word for baskets here in this part of the scripture is different from the word baskets that's used in the feeding of the 5,000. With the Jews, it's talking about a very small basket, a basket that one of the Jews would carry for himself for his individual food so he'd have enough to get him by for a little while so that he wouldn't have to go look for food somewhere or take a chance on eating something that a Gentile had touched. So these were small baskets. But when Jesus fed the 4,000, there were seven baskets left over. And the word is different here. And this is a word for the baskets that Gentile uses, which was a huge basket. In fact, this is a basket so large that we find in the book of Acts that the apostle Paul was let over the wall at Damascus in one of these types of baskets. So there's seven of these that are left over. Just huge baskets of food that are left. How blessed we are that when we come to Jesus, he never sends us away without his blessings. You know, you might be disappointed and disturbed by what people do, by what Christians in your church have done, by things that you think are not right for them to do to you and treat you in a certain way. And people become very discouraged by other Christians. But isn't that something that we learned just last week? That the disciples of Jesus don't often show the amount of compassion that Jesus had. They can be very unlike Jesus. The thing to do is never to look at people. Never to look at what people do or have done to you. Always keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on him because he always promises that he will fill you to the full. He'll take care of all of your needs. He'll always keep you spiritually fit and trim because he is your provider. So what do we do in the midst of all of this information? We glorify the God of Israel. Only this we know, that he's our God too. Jesus Christ is our God too. And so we glorify him for all the wonderful works that he's done in giving his life and then sustaining us and giving us eternal life by faith in him. Trust Jesus. He'll, he'll never leave you, as they say, high and dry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and We thank you for lessons learned here today. We see the compassion of Jesus. We know that he is a friend that cares about us, someone who's always looking after us. And Lord, we just pray that you would open our eyes to realize the great and bountiful blessings that we have all received. We live in a time when Christians are very disgruntled. We look at the economy and we look at things that are happening in our country and we become very, very disappointed But it was never the government, it was never America or any human nation that could fulfill your plans for the world. That comes from Jesus Christ, who is the king of a greater kingdom. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to look to that kingdom and find all of our resources there, all of our hope and all of our fulfillment in the king of the universal kingdom, in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for someone today who may not know you as Savior. I pray that the spiritual blinders have been lifted from their eyes, that they might come to you. Then I pray for Christians that we might realize 
the bountiful resources that we have in you and not complain, but realize all of our hope is in you. Thank you, Lord. Bless us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.